Good morning, church family. It's wonderful to be here this morning on this Lord's Day to worship the Lord and study his word together. I'll invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn to Mark chapter 10. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at the end of Mark 10 together, as well as the first section in Mark chapter 11. As you find your place and get settled, uh, I want to uh, make an announcement to you from our elders. This, there's information about this in your connector. But we are coming to you today as the congregation to ask you to nominate uh, for three deacon positions in our church. Uh, here recently, uh, we have had two of our deacons pass away. Uh, Ed Bailey, who served as our deacon for Lord's Supper. Uh, uh, Neil Powell, who served, his funeral was yesterday, uh, who served as our deacon for Homebound. Uh, and then we've had one deacon, because of health concerns, step down, Benny Summerlin, our deacon for our hospital ministry. So we need new people to lead in uh, these service areas of our church. And so there's specific instructions in the connector about how you can nominate uh, servants in our church. Here's what we're looking for, people who are already serving. That is how you find leaders in the church. You look for people who are qualified and already serving in areas. Uh, but we ask you, following Acts chapter 6, we ask you, the congregation, to nominate to us people that you see serving who could lead in these areas of our church. So for the next few weeks, we'll be accepting nominations uh, from you. We would ask that you follow the instructions there in the connector. There's a website that you can go to and a form that you would fill out. Before you nominate someone, we would ask that you tell them that you are going to nominate them and make sure that they are willing to be nominated. Uh, but please, church family, church members, take this seriously uh, because we certainly do need uh, deacons to serve in these areas of our church. And you would be making specific nominations for specific positions, uh, Lord's Supper, homebound, and hospital visitation. All of these are actually leading teams of people, which is what we want to, uh, to meet these needs in our church. With that said, I'll invite you now to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word, beginning in Mark chapter 10, verse 46, and we're going to read down ver through verse 11 of the next chapter. Mark tells us, and they came to Jericho, and he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. 
If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it and it will send it and we and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it and many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the gathered body of believers, for the encouragement and edification that we receive for one another, and the joy that we experience as we gather as the family of Christ here in this place. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We recognize it as from you with the intention of instructing our hearts and convicting us of our sin and pointing us to salvation in your son, Jesus, who we glorified today. Father, we do pray as a together, as a congregation, that you would continue to raise up new leaders here. We are seeking now new deacons to serve in our church. Father, would you meet this need from within our congregation, we pray. Place it on members' hearts to nominate other members who could serve in this way. Thank you, God, for the many ways that we care for and serve one another. Help us now as we approach your word. Would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, change our hearts and minds, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Today is Palm Sunday, at least in the text. Now, for those of you who despise the winter like my wife, you probably wish it was actually Palm Sunday because that would mean it's springtime. We could be done with this cold weather that welcomed us this morning. But here in the text, at least when we get to Mark 11, it will be Palm Sunday, which means there is only one week of Jesus' life left. If you're new or newer to Christian faith and newer to Scripture, Palm Sunday is Jesus' final entry into Jerusalem, which we will see here in Mark 11, here in a moment. And it marks one week, actually, before his resurrection. He enters on a Sunday, is crucified, most likely on a Friday, and then resurrected on a Sunday, And so we are in the final days of Jesus' ministry. Now, we won't get to his crucifixion and resurrection until Easter. And so while we have run kind of at a breakneck speed through the Gospel of Mark, I think this is the uh, 22nd sermon in Mark, which is pretty quick uh, for my preaching style to get to this point, we will slow down. It will take us quite a while to get through, through the next few chapters together because they don't con- the stories and teachings don't connect quite like they did in the previous section in the previous sections of the gospel of mark what, what we what we will see here is two events that that mark really places together and we're going to see a couple of things that 
connect them together. They're not often preached together, even though I think they do help us to understand what's happening uh, both in Jericho and in, and in Jerusalem as we look at Jesus healing Bartimaeus and then the triumphal entry, both of which point us towards encounters with the son of David. Jesus being the son of David is not a primary theme in the gospel of Mark. It's, it's a title for Jesus that is found in other uh, gospel accounts, but it is not one that Mark focuses on, but it is one that we see in both of these stories, really two of only maybe three or four places that we see it in all of this gospel account, which is why I want us to consider these things together this morning. The main idea of our sermon today is that Jesus, the true son of David, is the only one worthy of our faith and adoration. That what Bartimaeus and the crowds both call Jesus, the son of David, is true of him. It is true of him maybe in a way that they don't fully understand, particularly the crowd. And we will see that when we get to chapter 11. And certainly it is even more true, which we will see when we get to chapter 12, and I'll reference here in a few moments, in a a way that even the religious leaders of the day failed to understand about the Messiah. We are blessed with hindsight, looking back over the full teaching of the New Testament church, the full ministry of Jesus, and how it fulfills the Old Testament prophets. But nonetheless, Jesus is, we can say this is true, the son of David. And as such, he is the only one that is worthy of us to place our faith in and for us to adore as the crowd does. So we'll see this in two sections, the first story and then the second. First, a personal encounter with the son of David begins a lifelong process of following him. Mark chapter 10 ends with Jesus, we're told in verse 46, arriving in Jericho. Jericho is only about 15 miles outside of Jerusalem, although it is nearly a mile in elevation below Jerusalem. Jericho sits somewhere around 750, 800 feet below sea level. The oldest constantly inhabited city on the face of the planet was Jericho. People have lived in Jericho for thousands of years. It was an ancient, ancient city in Jesus' day. Very much so even still today. And people still do live. I've been to Jericho twice. People do still live in Jericho today. It was about a day's walk, but it was a difficult walk from Jericho to Jerusalem. Uphill. Jerusalem sits 2,500 or so feet. Depends on where you're going. 3,000 feet above sea level. So you can imagine the walk through arid, really desert-like conditions, wilderness-type conditions, all the way until you get to Jerusalem. It was a difficult final leg, but it would have been the leg that every pilgrim coming from Galilee into Jerusalem multiple times a year would have made. And so it's important enough for Mark to include this stopover in Jericho. This likely doesn't happen on the same day, but it was within a day or so that these two events would have taken place. While the gospel of Luke spend something like eight or nine chapters covering Jesus's final journey from Galilee uh, to Jerusalem and all of the things and all of the teachings that happen on the way. Mark does not. Jesus simply leaves Galilee in chapter 10 and arrives in Jericho by the end of that time. Mark, as he so often does in his gospel, 
moves us quickly to the next point. But here he stops along the way, coming into Jericho and then leaving Jericho. Now, one of the things that happens that Mark doesn't tell us about, right, is Jesus encounters a tax collector in a tree, Zacchaeus, right, while he's in Jericho. Mark doesn't tell us about this story, but now he's going to leave. And we're told that as he is leaving with his disciples and a great crowd, now here's why there's a great crowd. Number one, they're, they're kind of crowded with Jesus. But number two, we're coming into the week of Passover. Every Galilean coming from the north is taking that, this road through Jericho into Jerusalem. There would have been great crowds of people. Jerusalem went from a few hundred thousand people to well over a million people during feasts. And this was the big one. This is Passover. And so this great crowd and a blind man, the only one named in Mark's gospel. This is the only person that Mark names who Jesus heals, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar sitting on the road, the road into and out of Jericho. Jericho didn't sit on the main road into Jerusalem. It was kind of offset. So there was one road in and one road out. And Bartimaeus would sit on that road and would beg this is where he is. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, so word about who Jesus was, had made it from Galilee to Jericho, he begins to cry out and to say, Jesus, and then in a, using a title for Jesus, as I said, not common to Mark, he calls him son of David, and he begs him, have mercy on me. And while Jesus very often throughout the gospel of Mark has been the one to silence people who are using messianic titles about him, he does not do so here. It is the crowd that does so. Look at verse 48. And when many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So in verses 47 and 48, Bartimaeus cries, son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. He calls him in verse 47, Jesus of Nazareth. This is only one of two places, again, that that happens in the gospel of Mark. The first healing in the gospel of Mark, in chapter 1, he's called Jesus of Nazareth. And here in the last one, he's called Jesus of Nazareth, bookending the healing ministry of Jesus. This is the last healing that we will see in the gospel of Mark. But for the only time, here's the crowd attempting to silence this man, calling out to Jesus. Why is this crowd doing it? They're not doing it for the same reason that Jesus requested silence of those that he had healed. Jesus requested, if you've not been here with us, throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus would heal people and he would request them to not tell people about it because he wanted to protect against false understandings of who the Messiah was. That's not the purpose of the crowd here. The crowd as we're going to see, gets, gets all caught up in, in this exuberance as they enter into Jerusalem, and they don't think Bartimaeus is worth the time of Jesus. They don't think this beggar on the side of the road, and we have to understand the way that first century Israelites thought about health and wealth. This man was blind because he or his parents had done something wrong. That was their view. It's not the right view, but it was their view. And so this is a man that doesn't deserve the time of the son of David. This is a 
this, this is a big deal. They've been coming from Galilee. They're now in Jericho. They're in their last stop before Jerusalem. Don't bother him. But what does Jesus do? Verse 49 tells us that Jesus stopped. Now, we need to just stop like Jesus stops for a moment and consider what's happening. The cries of this poor blind man begging on the side of the road stopped the son of David in his tracks. The literal translation of what would be said there is that Jesus stopped and was still. That this man cries out and while the crowd tries to silence him, Jesus, the central figure of this movement, stops. He hears him. He hears him. And he simply says, call him. Bring him here. Jesus makes Bartimaeus the central figure now in the story. And they call to the blind man. Notice that the crowd shifts. They say, take heart. Get up. He is calling you. The tone of the crowd changes completely once Jesus stops and recognizes this man. Now notice what he does in verse 50. It's the reference to the son of David and what Bartimaeus does in verse 50 that I think connects this story to what follows. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Now, Bartimaeus, uh, the cloak was the outer garment. They wore several layers of garment. The cloak was the most outer garment. Bartimaeus likely had spread his cloak out on the ground on this road coming into Jerusalem, sat down on it, and then kind of wrapped himself in it. And he begged there. But when he hears, call him, when he hears, bring Bartimaeus to me from Jesus, who he has now twice just begged for mercy, Bartimaeus leaves that cloak behind, very likely his only possession in the entire world, and goes to Jesus. And Jesus asks, what do you want from me? And the blind man says to him, rabbi, meaning teacher, let me recover my sight. Now, we've seen Bartimaeus recognizing Jesus as the son of David. We're going to get into more of what that means here in a minute. We've seen Jesus and his compassion for Bartimaeus, who has heard this cry for mercy and stops this procession out of Jericho towards Jerusalem. Like All of this is meaningful for us. But what happens in verse 52 is what I want us to focus on. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. While we are going to see and most often associate with Palm Sunday, this gigantic crowd crying out to Jesus, what we see here at the end of chapter 10 is this one-on-one. -on -one. Yes, there is a crowd present, but there's this one-on-one -on -one interaction between blind and poor Bartimaeus, who is in desperate need of Jesus. And this has been a theme throughout the Gospel of Mark, that Mark really shows us the, the desperate need that people have for Jesus. The demon-possessed, the blind, the lame, the, the disciples in the boat, crowds without food, that Mark conveys to us the desperate need of these 
people. And one final time, Mark does this with Bartimaeus. He needs his sight. And as has happened so often throughout the gospel of Mark, Jesus connects healing to faith. Now, we, we can twist this as the first century Hebrews did and make somehow our faith, this, our, our, our health and wealth, somehow a measure for how much faith that we have. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is able to heal. Jesus is God. He's the Messiah. He is able to do all things, but it's this man's cry to Jesus for mercy. And his faith in Jesus, and then it is his sight that is the recovery of his sight that Jesus uses as an illustration of our greatest need. And that is to see Jesus for who he really is, the son of David, the Messiah sent from God, the savior of the world. And then what does Bartimaeus do? Jesus tells him, go your way. But notice what Bartimaeus does at the end of verse 52. He followed him on the way. What's being described for us here is true faith. And when someone comes to true saving faith in Jesus, that person then follows him. This has been a theme throughout Mark. That there have been people that have wanted to follow Jesus, but because they didn't have faith, they weren't able to, like the rich young ruler. There are people that wanted to follow Jesus, like people that were healed in Gentile areas that Jesus didn't allow to, but said, go on out and, and tell people in those areas what I've done. But here, Bartimaeus expresses faith in Jesus. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. And he tells him to go your way. Bartimaeus, what way do you want to go? Jesus, I want to go where you're going. So when we encounter the son of David, when we encounter the Messiah sent from God, it begins a lifelong process of following him. I have no idea what happened to Bartimaeus. We don't. Church history is actually silent on that, which is really interesting because anytime we get a name for somebody in Scripture, it normally means, it usually means that that person was still around or at least was known by those who are being written of. If, if not, there would have been no reason to give, give their name, right? But church history silent of what's happened about Bartimaeus. So the last thing that we're told about this guy, both in Scripture and outside of Scripture, the last thing we're told about Bartimaeus is he followed Jesus. Hear me, church. When we see Jesus for who he truly is and we understand our desperate need for his mercy and call out to him in faith, our response is always going to be to follow Jesus. There is no cry out for need for help that doesn't end in true faith that follows Jesus. So we have this at the end of chapter 10, this personal encounter, this guy following him, identifying him as the son of David, leaving his cloak on the ground and following him. Now, we see a a crowd's encounter, not an individual's encounter, but a crowd's encounter with the son of David, 
which fulfills prophecy and demonstrates warranted adoration. By the time we get to the end of here, I think what Mark wants us to see is the crowd didn't have everything right, but the crowd did have some things right. And there are some things worth emulating in this crowd, and then we're going to bring it back to what we see with Bartimaeus by the end. Look with me in verses 1 through 7. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, again, about 15 miles uphill the whole way. You can walk this, by the way. There's like tours that will help you do it. When I go to Israel, I've been twice. We're going to go again maybe in a couple of years. We will not be walking from, Jer- from Jericho to Jerusalem. We drive it. Uh, it takes about 15 minutes. Uh, now, when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany, Bethpage and Bethany were two of the villages that sat on uh, the eastern slope of uh, the Mount of Olives. Bethany is where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. It's where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha lived. Um, Mark does not tell us about this, uh, but on the way, um, Jesus is anointed with oil there in, in Bethany. At the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which No one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside of the street, and they untied it. And some of those those standing there said to him, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Now, the first part of this, it's just interesting, right? Jesus gets to Bethany. It's nothing to walk from Bethany. I mean, you really just have to go over, um, go over the, the top of uh, Mount of Olives, and then your Jerusalem is in view. Mount of Olives sits across the Kidron Valley from the main city of Jerusalem, from the Temple Mount. You can see it. It's about 300 feet elevated over Jerusalem, so it's a, it's a beautiful view. Uh, and, and so this isn't far. Jesus, Jesus has walked the whole way. He doesn't need this colt because he can't walk. He needs this colt because there's a specific reason that, that the Lord is sovereignly controlling what is happening here. Now, the Lord sovereignly controls everything that happens, but Mark wants us to understand that the Lord is in sovereign control here, that this is a special entering into Jerusalem, that Jesus has entered Jerusalem a few times a year for his entire life. John, the Gospel of John, records many of those uh, times that Jesus went to Jerusalem for us. This is the only time Mark tells us about it, and it's the final one, and it's the important one. And so he sends his disciples to go get a colt, a donkey, a young donkey that had never been ridden, bring it to him. And according to the story here, it happens exactly as Jesus said it would happen. That's important, showing to us the providential plan of God to set up what needed to happen, that the Messiah needed to enter Jerusalem riding a colt. Why? Because Zechariah 9, 9 said that he would. This Old Testament prophet tells us, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, Mark is the only of the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, that, don't, uh, that don't make this explicit connection for us. As usual, Mark is more subtle than the others and places more emphasis, again, on the divine secret. Mark's still a little bit in this, I want you to kind of figure out these pieces of the puzzle 
as you put them together. But nonetheless, this is direct Old Testament fulfillment. Jesus, not because he needed help, but to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah, sits on the back of this colt as he travels from Bethany over the top of the Mount of Olives and into Jerusalem. And here's what happens along the way. Picking up in verse 8. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So just as Bartimaeus, coat spread out on the road, now everyone is spreading their coats out on the road. And in addition to the cloaks that are being spread on the road, leafy branches are being brought in the fields and spread out in front of Jesus. This is the welcoming of a king. We're to see it like this. That the crowd caught up in this moment is welcoming their king into their capital city. And they cry out to Jesus in verses 9 and 10, Hosanna. Now, Hosanna isn't an English word. It is a transliterated Hebrew word that literally means, save us, we pray. It comes directly from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 was one of the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 were used by pilgrims as they were coming into Jerusalem and at times during the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Booths while they were there in Jerusalem. And so quoting one of the Psalms of the Ascent from Psalm 118, they say, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Save us, we pray. They cry out to Jesus, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Whether every person in this crowd, certainly some, but not all, recognize fully who Jesus is. His disciples have have kind of warmed the idea. Clearly, Peter has, making a profession of faith in Jesus. You can see Bartimaeus, having just joined the procession from Jericho, new sight, he knows. Not everyone does, but nonetheless, there's this There's this joyful exuberance from this entire crowd exalting Jesus. Hosanna, save us, O Lord, we pray. Laying their cloaks and laying their palm branches in front of Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Is how they end chapter 9. But listen to chapter 10. Blessed is he who comes of our father David. Hosanna. In the highest. And when they say Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna in the highest literally would translate, uh, we pray, save us, we pray, thou who dwells in the highest. This is a call to God to reestablish the throne of David. Again, not everybody in the crowd gets this, but many of them, having been caught up in what Jesus was doing in Galilee and why this is This is full evidence of why Jesus 
in, in the gospel of Mark is, is so adamant about people not getting the wrong idea. Because a lot of people in this crowd now have the wrong idea. They're rightfully worshiping Jesus, but from the wrong idea. They think this is it. This is the coming Messiah. He was. This is the one who is coming to reestablish the throne of David. He was, but just not in the way that they thought. But still, what they are affirming about Jesus, that he is the son of David, that he is reestablishing the kingdom of David, is important because it is a primary promise of the Old Testament. You know, sometimes as we've walked through the gospel of Mark, maybe we've been a little harsh. I try not to be. Maybe we've been a little harsh on first, test, first century people in the New Testament that kind of got the Messiah wrong. Like you had all this Old Testament stuff that you should have known and, and you didn't know. Well, hindsight makes it easier for us. And there were so many Old Testament uh, so many Old Testament promises about the return of the son of David and the establishment of the kingdom of David that this is where their focus was. Let's just look through some. I'm going to read several scriptures here for us just because I want you to see how prevalent this is in the Old Testament. Going all the way back to the time of David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is part, these are two verses that are part of the covenant of God with David. God says to him, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish your kingdom and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So a thousand years before Jesus, God promises this to David, that his throne would be established forever. And it would pass down to Solomon, but that Solomon was a person that represented a greater son of God who would come. Then Fast forward a couple hundred years to Isaiah chapter 9, which we considered on Christmas Eve. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. A couple of chapters later in Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father and a branch from his root shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and, and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. In the verse 10, in that day the root of Jesse, again, this is David's line, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. You go further into Israelite history, you get to Jeremiah 23, where the prophet Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his day, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Then you go to Ezekiel 34, where Ezekiel says, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. 
And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be, the, be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. <laughs> These aren't the only ones. This is just some throughout Israelite history where they were promised that the kingdom of David would be reestablished. And not only would the kingdom of David be reestablished, but their salvation would come from it. So you can imagine the jubilation of the crowd. The hope that is in their hearts. But they had gotten it wrong. They thought Jesus was coming to literally establish a throne in Jerusalem. That he was going to come and rid them of their Roman occupiers and oppressors. That they were once again going to be an independent nation. They viewed salvation temporally, not eternally. But Jesus brings a different kind of salvation. And this is why when we get to Mark chapter 12, two days after this event... Jesus is warning about the scribes. We'll get to this in February. And he's teaching in the temple, and he asks this question, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself called him Lord, so how is he son? And the greatest throng, and the great throng heard him gladly. Jesus, you see, is more than the son of David. He's David's Lord. Now, I'm going to more on this in a few weeks, but notice this. Even then, just a couple of days later, Jesus begins to correct the mentality of the crowd. But nonetheless, there's something to emulate here. Great adoration for Christ as they cry out to him, save us, we pray. Establish the kingdom. Of David, and we too, God's people now, should cry that same cry to him. Verse 11, though, <laughs> is really unique in, in the way the various gospel authors record the triumphal entry. But it is, it's really the culmination of this divine secret. All these times that Jesus has told people to be quiet. Mark's telling of this event, concluding it in verse 11, really maybe is one of the most anticlimactic moments in all of the Bible. Hundreds, maybe thousands of people worshiping Jesus as they come down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley, make this turn along the wall and go in the Eastern Gate. We would call it the Golden Gate, which is blocked up now at the base of the Temple Mount. But then what happens? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Everybody goes home. Why? I think Mark records it for us in this way. That Jesus, what I, let's just read it. And he entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. And when he looked around at everything, it was already late. And he went out to Bethany with the 12. Which means Jesus went in the Eastern Gate, goes into the Temple Mount, kind of looks around a little bit. Crowd disperses. And Jesus goes, all right, we'll come back tomorrow. Goes back out the door that he went in, walks back up the Mount of Olives, crosses over the top, goes to Bethany, probably to Lazarus' house. This, this anticlimactic moment to the triumphal entry. What does this help us to see, though? It, 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 it reminds us that ecstatic exuberance doesn't equal saving faith. That when Jesus got into the city and didn't do what the crowd thought he should do, they just kind of went on their way. But there's one guy 
Now, that's not recorded here, but I believe this. There's one guy that backtracked and went to Bethany with him, and his name was Bartimaeus. Because Bartimaeus understood something that many in the crowd didn't. He had true saving faith and followed Jesus and glorified him. So what? Does my faith in Jesus lead to real discipleship and true adoration? Bartimaeus is an example for us of real discipleship. The crowd is an example for us of right adoration, but not necessarily true adoration. They were right in what they were saying of Jesus, but maybe they didn't understand it. Many of them dispersed afterwards. Some of them in a few days likely yelled, crucify him. So our question is, am I a Bartimaeus or am I the crowd? Does my faith in Jesus, this faith that I have placed in him, has it caused me to do what true saving faith always does? And that is to follow Jesus and then truly adore him. If we could, I would like to use a passage from 1 Peter chapter 1 to conclude our time. It helps us to see this progression. Peter writes for us, in this you rejoice. So it's this feeling of rejoicing that Peter is telling us. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. My encouragement to you today is to be a Bartimaeus that adores Jesus like the crowd. Many in the crowd dispersed because their faith in Jesus wasn't genuine. As our faith is tested through the trials of life, it still leads us to glory and adoration of our good God, who when we cried to in saving faith, have mercy on me, son of David, he hears us, he stops, and he saves us, and we follow him and give glory to him for the rest of our lives. Now, let me leave you with this. <laughs> this will not be the final time that Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives. Now, he will do so nearly every day for the rest of the week that we will consider in the last week of his life in the Gospel of Mark. But there is yet another final time. The Messiah will return. <laughs> The throne of David will be established. Jesus establishes a spiritual kingdom here in the gospel accounts. But Jesus will establish an eternal kingdom at his second coming. He has won the battle. The victory, as we will sing about in just a moment, has been won. He has defeated sin and death. And he is coming back. And in that moment, it will not be a secret. In that moment, people will not have to wonder what is going on. In that moment, no one will get it wrong. When Jesus returns, every eye will see, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, seated on the throne of David. But it is those who followed him in life like Bartimaeus 
who cried with saving faith and who found the mercy of God, who will rule and reign with him for all eternity. My friends, will you be there with him? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus, that he entered Jerusalem all those years ago, going to his death in our place so that we might find life in him. And the next time he comes, see him for the reigning king that he already is. Thank you, God, that when we cry to you in faith, you stop, you hear us, you have mercy on us. And there is no one in this room upon whom you will not show your mercy. May they have faith in you. We give you honor and glory as we... Sing here in a moment. We do so as the crowd, professing truth of who you are and the victory that is found in you as you have come to save us. Thank you for that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church of God, it's now that we stand together. We glorify our great God.